Hi, I'm Steve. I'm Erin. And I'm Daniel. And we're the Verbal Reasoning Podcast. Three friends with professional scientific backgrounds. Talking about all things under the sun in the most digestible way. Enjoy. Welcome back to the Verbal Reasoning Podcast. And this is episode 23. I can't believe we reached episode 23. But um, side note. Uh, anyway, today we're going to be discussing uh, the Belt and Road Initiative led by China and a special, special guest will be coming on. And Aaron, t- tell him about this guest. T- tell him this one more is time. A, this is a fantastic guest. This isn't like the guests we've had before, right? This mm-hmm. isn't like those, those guests who I was, you know, gassing up for no reason. This is an actual serious guest. This is the assistant professor at Soas University. Her name is Dr. Kobayashi. And she is an expert in all things international relations, including the Belt and Road Initiative, which we will be discussing today. Now, to make it easier for our listeners, who are highly intelligent people, but, you know, might need some help along the way. What is the Belt and Road Initiative? Mm. So let's, let, let me break it down on a very uh, simple level of my understanding. Like I said, the Belt and Road Initiative is led by China and uh, it's branded in a way where it's kind of compared to the Silk Road because obviously it has uh, connotations where the Silk Road was a trade link between uh, East Asia and the Middle East and a lot of trade, a lot of exchanges, science, ideas were, was obviously very good for the two regions. And um, in this case, China's trying to rebuild kind of influence uh, through transportation links, ports, infrastructure, uh, technology, building host nations nearby. But obviously, there's some contention on whether it's for an altruistic purpose or for their own purpose. So that, that was quite like a broad definition of what it is. And bear in mind, neither one of us are experts on this in any way. Not like uh, Dr. Kobayashi who's going to be on in a moment. But, yeah, you know, I would say take this with a pinch of salt. However, uh, so the way you have just described it is that previously there was this thing called the Silk Road. And it is yeah. not literally a road made out of silk. It's more to do with... <laughs> uh, trading routes which allow trade to occur between different nations which were well established going from china all the way to the middle east yeah. uh, and as you said it's not just you know goods it, what sorts of things would be traded along here obviously it would be mostly goods but when when there's trade there's always trade trade of ideas you know people move around people mm. share ideologies uh with ideology people share technology as well um you know science like and so on science also yeah, exactly. like paper so, yeah. was taken uh, from china into the middle east mm-hmm. uh, it was a cheaper version of producing paper than uh, they used to do uh, kind of like what the greeks did um and it, and actually that probably spurred on the uh the uh, scientific revolution in in that middle ages for the middle east to be honest paper was cheap and people could write down ideas and this is just one part of the technology that was an ideas that was spread I want to ask you, Aaron, like if obviously doc, when, when the doctor comes on, yeah, and guys, trust me, it's going to be a good one. Yeah, listen in. When the doctor comes on, she'll explain more. But Aaron, your initial thoughts, like, does this make you feel like wary or do you think, yeah, man, this is a good thing? Like as, as someone who like, was born in the UK, etc. So the way I look at it is that, you know, this Silk Road, which we've just explained, they're trying to... Um, implement that going forward uh in a modern way where they're going to build you know rail lines and they're going to build uh you know all sorts of infrastructure into what we call host nations which are nations that have signed up to be a part of this initiative 
but you know as just an outsider with very minimal knowledge on it it does make me think you know as you said is this going to be altruistic why is china doing this what's their long-term goals and how is this going to affect us here in for example the uk and in europe you know those are the first questions that come to mind and obviously mm. we'll be discussing this with dr kobayashi but you know i think uh, even maybe if it's just like a, a thing that you know our media plays on uh, when you hear oh this is a new initiative from china china's doing this new thing automatically you you look at it with a bit of you know mm-hmm. suspicion yeah, just because you know if china increases in their like economic power does that mean that we're going to lose our economic power that's mm. the kind of first thing that comes to my head yeah not going to lie like we've seen china invest a lot all over the world and I guess maybe their foreign policy obviously might be corrected later on, but comparing it to American foreign policy, which is quite abrasive, it seems like Chinese foreign policy is more um, kind of like more to, subtle. It's more subtle. It's like to infiltrate all areas of uh, of the community locally. Uh, I mean, I, I I will speak of this later on, but uh, in Algeria, uh, we have a lot of, uh, for example, like motorways were all built by the Chinese companies a lot of infrastructure all built by Chinese companies. And is honestly, you'd be amazed how quickly they built uh, all, all this infrastructure. But you can you only feel that this comes to, to a price. Do you know what I mean? Like they, why are they coming to Algeria? For what reason? You know, it's, it's not because they like the weather, in it? Because they, they got the sun there. Do you, do you know what I mean? Like, they come in here for a real purpose. And I feel like it's more of, um, it's like a loan shark, you know? It gives you some money. You're happy now. Maybe later on you'll be asking for a thousand pound percent interest or whatever. That's my feelings from it. I don't know. It, is it, if it benefits neighboring countries, do you think the people will like it? You see, this is the thing, and this is why we wanted to have Dr. Kobayashi on because we don't know. We don't know enough about this so that we can say to our listeners, you know, 100%, this is what's going to happen with the Belt and Road Initiative. Mm. You know, usually the topics that we discuss, we do know a bit more about it. Um, in terms of the you know the nitty-gritty of it if it's something more scientific for example Um, but this is really one of those topics that's so huge that requires so much specialist knowledge that you know we can't tell you unilaterally this is the right thing going forward or this is going to be a good Mm -hmm. thing or a bad thing but obviously we have voiced our possible concerns with what could happen going forward I think um I think I'm I'm really looking forward to Dr. Kobayashi's insight. Obviously, we have some questions prepared for her and mm-hmm. so on. But, it's time to um, bring on our best guest ever. Uh, yeah, I think it's I think it's time to bring on our absolute best guest ever, uh, Dr. Kobayashi. Steve, would you please do the honors and introduce our guest? Today we have a very special guest, Dr. Yuka Kobayashi. She's a lecturer professor specializing in China and international politics at SOAS, University of London. Her research also covers international relations of China and in regards to the Belt Road Initiative, which is obviously the topic we'll be discussing today. She has advised various government think tanks and international organizations on this subject, and we'd like to give a very warm welcome onto the Verbal Reasoning Podcast. Welcome, Dr. Kobayashi. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you for coming on. Hello. Thank you for having me. Well, you're, you're more than welcome. Thank and you maybe, for coming on. Yeah, exactly. Um, we'll jump into, straight into the thick of it. So, like, starting with the first question, with the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, surely out of it will come a lot of domestic and international aims. Uh, obviously, this is why it's been implemented. And I, I wanted to ask you, uh, on your opinion, how do you think that 
the outcomes of, of, of the Belt and Road Initiative will affect China's government relationship with the international community? That's a really big question. Um, first of all, I think I want to first touch a little bit upon the domestic and international aims, because that would really help us understand what China is trying to accomplish by this Belt and Road Initiative, and then talk a little bit about how this is actually impacting its relations. So I think China tries to group all of their aims domestically and internationally together in this big umbrella of a Belt and Road. And what it actually means is really quite confusing because there's various ways that people have um, talked about the Belt and Road. And I think it's helpful to look at China's going out strategy and going beyond um, the borders economically, geostrategically, and accomplishing their aims of becoming a very strong and wealthy nation. And it also comes together when their economy is actually becoming much more developed. It's no longer this kind of goods-based economy, but something that's very sophisticated in um, trade and services. Also, as much as technologically, you're, leading, you're seeing them lead in AI. So these kinds of developments of a very mature economy, China, really comes together with what they're trying to accomplish geostrategically of becoming a very important actor in international affairs. Yet they really put this together with this kind of romantic way of talking about the Silk Road, which is less intimidating than when you say China's rise and China's aims of becoming a hegemonic power. So I think in a way, it's a very clever way of the Chinese government to really put together these various aims in terms of material power and ideational power in this um, Belt and Road Initiative. However, it's been happening quite We've already got about a lot of experience, about three or four or five years now. So we're already seeing this kind of pushback against Felton Road. So you've heard about the debt trap. You've heard about the Sri Lanka port. So you're seeing that a lot of these investments are not as transparent and not really looking for the host nation's economic viability or really what's most ideal for the host nation. So in a sense, we're also seeing this kind of pushback against um, Belt and Road. So it's impacting in various layers. And if you look at the host nation's elite level discourse and the civil society discourse, you're seeing a very different kind of picture there. Oh, that's quite interesting. Um, So you'd say it's kind of like an intrusion into into uh, say host nations um, but depending on of course the the social uh, economic uh, background of people in the host nations they view it differently um, would you say like part of it can be attributed to maybe the the rhetoric of oh they're taking our jobs kind of um, uh, uh, you know feeling in in some nations because at least in my background in Algeria I've seen uh, China's actually been very heavily developing motorways etc I mean it's not the same initiative I guess Mm-hmm. But um, the local sentiment is that, um, you know, they're essentially taking all the jobs on the on the mm-hmm. on the, on the uh, bottom end. But mm-hmm. on the on the top end, we've seen uh, extreme, extremely quick development um, in infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Would you would you say that that's that's possible in, in, in the Asian countries as well? I think it's interesting to really view this from a longer perspective. What you're talking about there is really something that's been discussed about China's activities historically in China, in Africa, China and Central Asia, China and Southeast Asia, which happens even before Xi Jinping came into the picture, even before this discourse of the Belt and Road Initiative. So we're talking about China going out and going out strategy 
so developing their economies. And if you look at historically what's been talked about in China and Africa, it's exactly what you talk about in the case of Alger, right? So in terms of this, um, the worker level discourse, you're saying this kind of jobs all go to the factory um, that actually are run by the Chinese who bring their own workers. So in effect, yeah. the investment comes, the factories are set up or these, you know, I don't know in, um, in Algeria, but in cases of Africa, you have a lot of investment in energy. Mm -hmm. But these kinds of, you know, initiatives don't really bring much for the local communities. It's great for the host nation at the elite level in the sense of look at all this investment. Compared to the Bretton Woods institutions, they're much more risk taking um, the Chinese and Bretton Woods are much more risk averse because there's all these kinds of, you know, protocols they have to go um, through to yeah. get these kinds of, you know, loans and investments. So in that sense, it's actually a very different picture and elite level, it's been used as a way of gathering support for various leaders to really win the next elections or get this kind of support. But I think at the civil society, local level, you're seeing a very different picture where you say, okay, the jobs are going to the Chinese. We're not really get reaping the benefits. Or they're actually grabbing the land in a very um, unjust way that really just prioritizes the Chinese interest economically and not necessarily the host nation's interest in terms of what's best for the local environment. So I think it's a very mixed picture. And this is also complicated by the fact, if you look at the host nation, how economically developed they are. So, for example, if you're seeing the host nation, Alger, host nation in, say, Central Asian countries, Southeast Asian countries, which don't really have a bargaining power against China. And if you compare that to, say, for example, how China's investment, investing in the UK or, say, Germany, who have a lot more clout, so they're not going to be able to get away with doing things the Chinese way than they were, say, for example, in these kinds of Central Asian, Middle Eastern countries that don't really have enough power and leverage over the Chinese. Mm, well, that's interesting. So you'd say that the model, for example, that you mentioned where they bring their own labor and management wouldn't necessarily or couldn't be applied in, in let's say, more developed Western countries at all. Well, interestingly enough, for example, I mean, now the UK is out of the European Union, but you mm. have things like, for example, the layer of um, laws domestically in European countries, as well as the second layer of the European Union. And they have just recently instituted this kind of um, regulations that look at investment screening, right? So say, for example, China invests in Germany. Investment screening allows them to really say, okay, what's behind these investments? And this happened because they had a robotics company called KUKA. I don't know if you follow this, but yeah. in, the, in this, yeah, so they were really worried about robotics and this kind of intellectual property. What happens to these things when it gets bought over by the Chinese? And what happens to the know-how of this German like leading company like KUKA? What happens to that if it gets all, you know, sent back to China? So this was a serious issue in terms of intellectual property, and also national security. And there was no layer in place in the European Union that would allow them to really screen where are these investments coming from? What are the intentions? Is it critical infrastructure that we really need to protect? And this actually started a dis uh, discourse among European Union states that led to a really record, like quick, legislation coming through called investment screening. So now that they have checks in place in Brussels, as well as, you know, the domestic level regulations that say, okay, are these Chinese investments safe? Are these Chinese investments not breaching critical infrastructure? And this is also things that are actually related to this discussion around Huawei, right? 
So if we're talking about 5G and this kind of critical infrastructure being really done by Chinese companies and connectivity in the Belt and Road is not just about roads and, you know, ports. It's connectivity in terms of, you know, networks and telecoms and also satellites. So everything is basically under this Belt and Road. And this kind of, you know, way of fighting back against this Chinese way, I think, is much more powerful for countries that have this kind of leverage and also rule of law and transparency in place in their own domestic regimes. So, for example, if you look at the cases in Central Asia that I've examined or the cases in Southeast Asia that I'm actually looking at now, those are countries that have a very weak rule of law. They have a very weak institution to deal with these kinds of, you know, transparency and laws and regulations. So they don't have these ways of really screening the investments or really ascertaining whether or not these Chinese investments are for the good of the host nation. Right. Okay. I can see how that, yeah, how that can have a negative effect. Maybe uh, moving on to the next question. Uh, if this initiative is successful, it is believed that there'll be, let's say, a major revival of many economies in host nations. And uh, what does that exactly mean to the European Western counterparts? Should they be afraid of, uh, of this possibility? Um, is there anything that could affect uh, the West neg- uh, in a negative way? I think it's an interesting question. And I think it was something that was really quite discussed at the very early stages of um, the Belt and Road. But I think you're seeing a lot of pushback now. And you're also seeing this kind of three challenges to Xi Jinping in this area. If you look at what's happening in China, discussions around Hong Kong, discussions around Xinjiang, and discussions around coronavirus. So these are three big challenges that Xi Jinping has to really answer to. And if he has all of these kinds of issues together with the Belt and Road, he's going to have really difficulties in balancing this kind of workload. So I think in a sense, Belt and Road is really very much at the forefront of Chinese foreign policy and the main things that they were really prioritizing in their agenda. But now you're actually seeing a diversification in terms of all these other issues that they have to answer towards. So in a sense, I don't think it's really going as well as it seems to from the outside. Mm-hmm. And if you look at really the data, you're also seeing the majority of the projects under the Belt and Road really being interrupted or stalled, right? So it, although these projects seem to be happening and being agreed, if you look at the real detail, it's not as impressive a picture that you would actually imagine. Oh, that's quite interesting because um, I guess the image that's portrayed is that, you know, it's this uh, strong program that's, you know, on the way to completion. I mean, it's, it's being driven strongly by the new emerging, uh, you know, uh, well, not even emerging anymore. I think, I think they're pretty dominant <laughs> in that region, mm-hmm. China. So it's quite interesting to hear that viewpoint. I also wanted to ask specifically, so part of the project is obviously to develop transportation networks and part of these, these networks will also include seaports. Mm. And we know in that, in, the re, in that region of the world, uh, especially in the South China Sea, mm. uh, a, lot, a lot of the sea areas are in contention. Uh, moreover, we know that the, the seas are usually governed by Americans, as, as in they protect the, the areas. And it, maybe it can be seen where building these new ports and transport connections for China can be seen kind of like an infringement on American authority. Uh, how do you think American sea superiority may be affected by the seaports? 
That's an interesting question. I think in a sense, you're actually seeing U.S. foreign policy really quite um, change significantly with these various um, changes of leadership. You're actually seeing the pivot back to Asia and you're seeing much more kind of inner looking policy under Trump. So in terms of U.S. Um, hegemony and how they actually view the Indo-Pacific, I think it's altered significantly with these kinds of Obama administration to Trump, and we'll see what happens in the next administration. But it is true that it's been theorized quite um, um, a lot in international relations about what happens with hegemonic power? What happens when the center becomes, power center becomes shifting from the United States to another center like China? And as you said, China is no longer an emerging power. It is something that's emerged. And you're actually seeing an alternative kind of institution building that China is even doing with the setup of AIIB. So you're actually seeing a lot of challenges. And even bilaterally, the US-China trade dispute, you're really seeing very much heated up because China and the United States are very much not just about competition about you know, trade, but who actually calls the shots in terms of this economic world order or world order. So if you think about how that actually plays out in the normative world order, right, what's happening in terms of um, ports, you're seeing the way of China challenging the South China Sea Tribunal between, you know, China and the Philippines. China really challenged that um, judgment and said, we're not going to really abide by this judgment. We're going with this kind of cultural understanding of norms like the nine dash rule. So on one side, you're actually seeing this kind of normative ascent in terms of world order, who really decides how we actually deal with this. And that I think is really putting the United States in a very nervous position. Because not only are they actually building ports, but these ports also translate into this kind of ways that we conceive about how we should actually um, order um, international affairs. And if you look at a lot of the countries that are actually in this belt and road, you're also seeing countries like, for example, Cambodia, Myanmar, Laos, who aren't really the traditional allies of the United States. And if you look at a country like Myanmar, you're seeing this kind of normative tension between what U.S. is trying to push forward in this kind of democratic regime to, say, for example, what's happening with the Rohingya crisis in the ICJ, right? So this is not just about ports being built. It's about which side of this kind of debate, which camp. It's almost like a new Cold War between the United States and China. Which spheres of influence are you entering? So in that sense, I think it puts the United States in a really um, nervous position. And also to the extent that a lot of these developments really took the United States by surprise. So some of these ports, which really became quasi-Chinese funded or Chinese built, U.S. really found out very late in the day. So a lot of this is really, one, actually making the United States quite inferior in terms of just material power that they're not having this influence in the Indo-Pacific anymore. They're not actually having their allies scattered through the regions. They have to go back to really court their old allies that really were a little bit neglected in the Trump administration to make sure that they have this kind of front against the Chinese. So in that sense, it's a really interesting piece of the puzzle of looking at how world order is going to be um, playing out in the next couple, um, decade or two. 
So uh, would you say, given, you know, everything that we've discussed so far, you know, you mentioned that it was almost a kind of quasi-world uh, Cold War uh, between America and China in, you know, really taking control of these ports, which are much more than just, you know, ports. They have more significant value uh, to the region as a whole. Um, would you say that the development of this Belt and Road Initiative, therefore, is going to lead to something positive when you look at it from the perspective of just, you know, ordinary people or would you say that the future of the belt and road initiative is going to cause more um i don't want to say conflict but more disruption in these regions that's a really tough question and i think you need to really divide it up into specific regions or even countries right so the belt and road initiative first of all you have the belt that really connects all the countries on the continent through um xinjiang to central asia to europe and onwards and you also have the maritime road. And I think depending on where you're looking at, it's actually really um, a different picture. In one sense, like for example, it is allowing some of these host nations to get the investments or the loans that they wouldn't otherwise have, right? So the Asian Development Bank said there's an $8 trillion gap in infrastructural funding. So there is this necessity for infrastructural funding. And the Chinese are extremely good at this. It comes from the back of, you know, two decades of you know, activities of China and Africa building all of this infrastructure and being very successful at that and then translating that success in Africa to other parts of the world. So in that sense, there is a good side of the story, right? But that also doesn't neglect the fact that there is also these kinds of difficulties in the sense that some of these hospital buildings in Africa just collapsed after a couple of years. So the standards are very different to the, you know, Bretton Woods kind of, you know, World Bank funded policies. And, you know, there's also a famous story about that road in Poland that didn't really meet the regulations, so they have to take it down, right? That was built by the Chinese. So in that sense, there's also these kinds of, you know, negative sides in terms of the material, actual um, infrastructure they're building, and also in terms of spheres of influence. I mean, how useful is it to really complicate an issue like the Rohingya crisis. It is a real, you know, you know, genocide, right, happening. And there's already yeah. a case forward in the international courts of justice. So in that sense, to complicate that issue of genocide with spheres of influence, are we going to be on the side of the international sort of um, normative order? Are we going to have an alternative order by the Chinese? Because it was very famous that Wang Yi, the foreign minister, actually flew to you know, Myanmar before Aung San Suu Kyi flew to The Hague, right? So you're already seeing these kinds of things really complicate even issues of, issues of genocide. So I think it's a multi-layered kind of issue. And depending mm -hmm. on which layer you look at, which segment of the belt or the road, or which host country, it's a very different picture. And I know it's not a satisfactory question, but you know, I'm always cautious when people approach me and say, are you, you know, because you're an expert in Belt and Road, I always say I study Chinese outward investment and Chinese economic trade diplomacy. I'm comfortable with that. But as you know, as somebody who actually researches on this, I'm not even quite sure what the Belt and Road is. It's always everything and anything you know, under the sun. Mm. And it's a very useful kind of way of projecting this Chinese rise in a very you know, um, friendly way. But in terms of talking about it in a meaningful way, you really have to look at what happens on the ground. And for that, you really have to look at each cases in each countries specifically. 
Yeah, it's definitely a much larger issue than to just say, you know, we're going to increase trade with, you know, host nations and everyone's going to have, you know, these blossoming economies. Everything's going to be great for everyone involved. Obviously, as you said, it depends on which part of the the belt or the road initiative you are to kind of look, you know, to look forward and see what's going to happen for you. So I do appreciate that, you know, asking such a broad question of is it a good thing or is it a bad thing isn't necessarily something that anyone can just answer. But, uh, you know, I think it is very interesting the the way you described um, how depending on who you are and even something as, as obvious as a genocide for you and me being bad or, you know, should, you know, be immediately stopped can be made into a very uh, difficult topic, so to speak, uh, because of all of the influences of people coming in. Um, I think uh, maybe Steve had one more question mm-hmm. about yeah. the uh, trade links. Yeah, yeah. so like mm. one of the main things, I mean, with trade comes culture uh, in general. Um, we see it with, uh, for example, uh, at least in the past with the Silk Road, uh, a, lot, a lot of ideas and cultural influences were ex- exchanged. And I was wondering uh, with this new Belt and Road Initiative, with the infrastructure that will come out of it, do you expect that there'll be a greater cultural influence where we'll see a revival of, or, or a, a new kind of media form be born out of it or a, a new culture form be born out of the transport links? Interesting, because culture is a big part of Belt and Road. So there's this kind of, you know, infrastructure building and infrastructural kind of, you know, connectivity. But there's also this idea of a people-to-people connectivity. So they're trying to have a lot of exchange, a lot of, you know, talking about civilization exchange. And this is a big part of the um, Chinese kind of going out soft power strategy. And, you know, there's been a lot of, you know, concerts or exhibitions on that kind of theme of connectivity of the Silicon Road. And that's really, you know, being discussed. But in terms of any meaningful discussion about connectivity about the Silicon Road, you know very well that we're already talking about these regions in a segmented way, right, compartmentalizing this. And there is kind of overlap in these sort of border regions. But in terms of the cultural exchange, there's been a lot of discussion about how this has been very much kind of a performance. And it's been one to really get a lot of support. But for example, like, you know, in Pakistan, CPEC is one of the, you know, most advanced cases for um, the China-Pakistan economic corridor and part of the Belt and Road, because China and Pakistan have had this historically important relationship. But if you look at, you know, the discussion about, so the part of Gwadar is in Balochistan, right? And they don't get any of this kind of people to people. No Balochistan, you know, region is benefiting from this kind of cultural exchange. It's all in the central regions like Lahore, right? So a lot of this is really being discussed, but the real regions where China's investing, how much of this kind of people to people cultural exchange are you getting? Not a lot. So I think in a sense, the idea is lovely. And I think there's something there but in terms of the reality catching up with that kind of idea it's still very far and before there you're already having these kinds of you know conflict between the chinese workers working in guadar and the local population that you know needed all this like police forces to make sure of the security you've read about these in the press right so in that sense i think that's more of kind of the day-to-day runnings of these investments rather than this kind of, you know, rosy picture of a connected people holding hands. And that is what China is striving for. And I think it will be such a great idea to be, you know, reaching that stage. 
but the reality is very far from accomplishment. Well, I'm glad we brought you on today because <laughs> yeah. I definitely learned a hell of a lot, <laughs> a, a lot today. So um, thank you very much, Dr. Kobayashi, for, for us and, and teaching us everything about, about well, the topic, the large topic that is the Belt and Road. I think one thing I've taken out of it is, is, is there's, a, there's a lot more to it than uh, I first thought. And I, 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 I thought I kind of figured it out, but I definitely have not. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for having on. me. Thank you, Dr. Kobayashi. Uh, Steve, why didn't you say who said having fun and being serious can't go hand in hand? That was bloody brilliant.